Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. We're in the middle of a series at the moment called Jesus in the Picture. And we've been looking at stories from the Bible where uh, people in the Bible from the biblical times are in dire situations where in their life uh, they're facing challenges, whether um, you know they're facing loneliness or um, you know, it's different circumstances uh, that they are facing. And in those moments, Jesus is entering the picture in their lives. And we've looked at how when Jesus enters their stories, there's a radical transformation when they uh, know the truth of uh, God and the, the Spirit uh, who is with them. Uh, Jesus uh, changes lives. Uh, we've seen that in action. And this week, we're actually wrapping up that series. And we're going to look at one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's a story of uh, the disciples who um, jumped on the, on the boat and sailed the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to look at the story of how they encountered a storm. So... Why don't we look at the passage this evening? So it's in Mark chapter 4. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to start from verse 35. Uh, if you have your digital device, feel free to open up on that as well. Uh, and the uh, words will be on the screen as well. So that's Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Awesome. Well, let's go. So verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, Don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And in this story, when we look at... um, Jesus is calling them from the side of the Sea of Galilee where they've been ministering to uh, the people that are gathering around Jesus. So it's considered, you know, they're surrounded by people that, um, uh, yeah, on their side, they're they're in a place where they're safe. And Jesus is actually calling them to travel to the other side uh, where uh, the Gentiles are. And at that time... um, yeah, the disciples didn't really want to mix with the Gentiles, the people that thought differently. And uh, Jesus, in this, at the start of the picture, we can see he's actually calling them uh, to go to a side uh, that is unknown to them. Um, and I think I know, I have a story I'm about to tell, and I think I know exactly how the disciples were feeling on that day when they encountered the storm. Now, early in the year in June, July holidays, uh, my family booked a holiday up to the Whitsundays and we uh, hired two catamarans and just sailed the Whitsunday Islands for two weeks. There's some pictures on screen, so that's one of the boats we hired and that's a really good quality photo I took um, on the first day. Um, I am a photographer by trade, ask Don Beardsley. Um, I helped the creative team out a lot with my photos. I don't really. Um, but yeah, it was a beautiful holiday, and uh, I left feeling so refreshed and energised. Um, 
but I couldn't help but feel that it was my dad's way of making it up to us. Let me explain. My whole life, I've never had any good experiences with large bodies of water. This is probably the first time I actually enjoyed a trip out on the water. Now, I've got a photo on screen. When I was about oh, two years old, maybe, um, Dad took us out on these little pedal boats and see, there's me and my brother there, and we're in the middle of this lake. And as you can see, we're not wearing any safety belts or harnesses in this photo, and we're not even wearing live vests. And I mean, Dad's pedaling on his own, and you have to think, how is he going to be able to pedal the boat and keep us safe without us falling off and drowning in the, uh, in the water? So that was my first experience. Uh, when I was five years old, don't have a photo for this one because I was five, I was enrolled in swimming lessons at school like any toddler would be. And at that time, I had this big fear of water, and especially putting my head under the water. And my wise swimming teacher, uh, bless her, she thought it'd be wise to um, help us conquer our fears. And the way she thought it'd be uh, useful is to make us stand on the edge on the deep side of the pool, make us jump in, remember we can't swim, and then, you know, naturally our bodies would learn how to swim. It's the, the whole thing about, uh, you know, fight or flight, or, you know, you will survive or you won't. Um, so I just remember not wanting to jump in, her making me jump in. And whenever I would try to then swim back up to the surface to take a breath, um, I'd filled with this dread where I'm, I'd just cry out and go, hey, miss, can you help me? Or miss, pull me up, rescue me. And instead of helping me, she just pushed my head back under the water. Um, it was quite traumatizing. Uh, so yeah, definitely did not have a good experience when I was five. When I was seven years old, I also nearly drowned. My friend had a swimming party in a, a pool in the backyard. She had all these inflatables on the water. Me and my brother got on one of the inflatables, floated around, and then as we uh, wanted to get off, we went to the edge of the pool, and my brother tried to step off, and in the process, flipped the inflatable with me still on it. And then I fell off, and I, I can't swim, I just sunk to the bottom of the pool. <laughs> and my brother went and got the, the friend's older brother to dive in and come rescue me, because no one noticed that I was actually just drowning at the bottom of a pool. <laughs> oh, so anyway, let's keep going. When I was 11, there's a photo of us at SeaWorld uh, when I was 11 years old, and I don't know, for some reason they thought it was a good idea to get me, my brother, and my little sister alone on this watercraft. Now, with my history of water and, and vehicles on water, uh, it's not a wise decision to let us navigate this big body of water on our own. Uh, when I was 12, we went canoeing around the Noosa Everglades, and we entered a storm on the way back. As we were heading back to um, the... A uh, place where we drop off the canoes to get back to our cars and go home. We encountered a storm. The winds came in, and I just remember spending an hour or two hours. It felt like seven hours. It's probably only an hour, just rowing against the wind, and it was exhausting. And I just remember hating the whole experience. I'm pretty sure one of my dad's friends he lost his car keys and his wallet in the water as well, and it's just bitter memories around that event. And then. When I was 13 as well, my dad's friend, uh, so it's a photo of a, there we go, perfect. Uh, my dad's friend took us out in his boat. We went to the, the deep sea, as you would call it. So there's Morden Bay, the islands, and then beyond that, it's called the deep sea for a 12-year-old. Uh, we, went, we went fishing, so we wanted to catch some big, you know, tunas or whatever you catch in the deep sea. And 
I remember in the morning, I was talking to my parents about it after this morning's service. I thought we ran out of fuel, but what actually happened was when we launched the boat in the water, the boat wouldn't start. So my dad's mate jump-starred the boat with his car. Now, I don't know if you can do the maths, but we couldn't actually take the car with us on the water to re-jump-start the boat. So when we, you know, we threw the anchor down, did some fishing, and when we wanted to start the boat to head back to Brisbane, the engine just wouldn't start. So in the middle of this big ocean, remember, there's no islands, there's no land anywhere, with no way to propel ourselves back. So we had to call the Coast Guard, and they had to come and uh, tow us back to shore. So after that experience when I was 13, when we were 14, my dad thought it would be a great idea to buy our own boat. <laughs> so now every weekend, we'd just get on the boat and we'd go out to Morden Island. One of the activities that we loved doing, apparently, was getting on this tube. And at first it seemed like such a fun idea, except my dad's main goal was just to throw us off, off, not off, that's Afrikaans, <laughs> throw us off within a 30-second time frame. So we'd get on, and he'd just floor the boat and take a really tight turn. I mean, the back of the boat's almost lifting off with the amount of pressure he's putting on the boat. And, um, yeah, we, I don't know, we flipped off and fell over. And I remember just asking him whether we can just have a relaxing ride, but it just <laughs> never seemed to happen for us. And later that day, on the day we went tubing, we threw the anchor down, uh, wanted to swim across to the shore to go have some chips at the Tangaluma Resort, you know, have a relaxing time after the stress. And as we're, you know, getting our sandals ready on the beach to make the walk over to Morden, um, the Tangaluma Resort, we just see the boat just slowly floating further and further away, only to realise that when we threw the anchor down, it ne never actually, like, like, got hold of the sand. It wasn't actually anchored to anything. So then in a panic, we had to swim back to the boat to go rescue the boat. And uh, again, I'm not a very good swimmer, so just the distance itself was, was stressful enough, let alone the boat floating away. And then when I was 15, I remember there was one specific trip. <laughs> it was also a trip out of Morton Bay, but on the way back, things took a turn for the worse. And I don't know if you know anything about Morton Bay, it's a bit like the Sea of Galilee. At one moment, it can be nice and flat, it can be really uh, cruisy to go through, you know, you just full speed on the boat, no dramas. But in the afternoon, a lot of the time, the wind changes. And then all of a sudden, you have these massive waves coming up and down. And with only a six-meter boat, there's limitations of how big the waves can be before the boat struggles to actually uh, not drown, essentially. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. You, you have to get, go down a really low speed and kind of just float over the waves instead of cutting through them. And on this day, my dad, obviously aware of what was going on, got me and my twin brother to sit on the nose of the boat. So if you can go back to the, the photo with the, the boat on its side, I'll show you where we had to sit. So this is where my dad sits in the canopy. And he got us not to sit inside the cabin where we'd be dry and protected. He actually got us to sit on the edge of the front of the nose, holding on, clampering on the railings that are just meant to be there as, you know, support if you walk around the front or I don't know. But so we had to sit on the nose of the boat. And then I just remember as we went up each wave, just kind of surging up with the boat and then crashing down. And the waves seemed to get more and more intense until there was this one really big wave. And we went up, down, and then up really high, and then just came crashing down. And the, the violence of that connection almost threw me off the boat. I remember kind of losing my grip and feeling like I was going to roll off the boat. 
And then I just decided enough was enough. I'm not going to risk my life uh, for our, our safety or the speed that we could return home at. I remember feeling like my dad didn't value me and my brother as his sons, and he placed more value on us as 50 kilo weights to keep the nose of the boat down. But yeah, so what I essentially did is I just decided enough is enough, and I ran back to the safety of the cabin to go sit next to my dad, where I knew, you know, practically I would be safe, but also being next to my dad was a bit of comfort for me as well. Now, every time, I've had experiences with water. Something always seems to go wrong. I don't know what it is, but I just have not had uh, good experiences. And to be honest, being a little bit vulnerable, still when I get on a boat, when I went on the trip early in the year, there was a bit of discomfort, probably a bit of anxiety that was building up to me as we were loading the catamarans uh, to go out on our trip. I was still kind of dreading what would happen on this trip. But I reckon out of that experience, I I can really relate to how the disciples were feeling on that day when um, they were encountering the storm as well. But to kind of understand why they were on a boat in the first place and and what the significance of the story is, we need to look at uh, the context around the passage. So we need to understand why Jesus was on the boat in the first place. So we know that, you know, earlier in, in Mark, Jesus was teaching large groups of people and it got to a point where he was... Um, surrounded by so many people, he, f- he felt like he was going to be crushed by the masses. So he actually asked the disciples uh, to pull a boat aside for him to, to preach from. So the story that we're reading starts from that place where he was on the boat preaching, and then he asked the disciples to then take him away from the masses. And then we fast forward to uh, verse 35. And we read the the story of the storm that they encounter. And in this picture, we can see that the disciples are also filled with anxiety and dread. Now, in Jesus' time, the Jewish people were actually afraid of large bodies of water. They saw it as an abyss and a symbol of chaos. They avoided large bodies of water. And as I said before, the Sea of Galilee, uh, where a lot of um, the the biblical uh, narratives and stories happened... uh, Yeah, it it happened around the Sea of Galilee. And because of its location, um, an east wind would come in, a cold east wind, and it would cover the warm water. And because there's warm water, the air right above the water is actually warm air. And with that cold air moving over the warm air, I don't know, something about weather. I'm not a meteorologist, but um, go see Tom after the service um, for response. And then, um, but essentially it would form clouds and storms and the, the weather would turn for the worse. And the Sea of Galilee was known for these storms. Uh, it almost sounds like the weather we had during the week where it was really sunny, it was beautiful during the day, and then within a second or probably like 30 minutes, a storm just rolled in and there was hail and, yeah, not fun. But here's the thing, right? Andrew, Peter, James and John, four of the disciples, they were the sons of Zebedee and they were all fishermen. So their profession was to sail uh, the waters. Uh, They were used to encountering storms on a daily basis. But yet, on this instance, they were convinced that they were going to drown. They were convinced that the waves would overwhelm the nose of the boat. They were caught in a moment of unknown. You see, anxiety is found in the unknown. Anxiety is found in the unknown. 
The Oxford Dictionary defines anxiety as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. And Dr. Jean Bereson says that experiencing anxiety is normal. A certain amount of anxiety can even be helpful. The problem is that sometimes the systems underlying our anxiety responses get dysregulated so that we overreact or react to the wrong situations. So I did some researching. So I have my own experiences around uh, how anxiety happens for me, but I did some research, and there's a number of factors that can actually contribute uh, to people feeling anxious or experiencing anxiety. These things can include work stress or uh, having a job change, pregnancy and giving birth. I definitely can't relate with that one. Uh, family and relationship problems, major emotional shock, verbal, sexual, physical or emotional abuse, death or loss of a loved one. And I think it'd be fair to say, based on that, all of us or, or most of us would have already experienced in our lifetimes and probably will experience some form of anxiety. I wonder whether this evening there are things in your life, that parts of your life that are unknown at the moment and it's causing you anxiety. What are the anxieties that you are grappling with? In our current time, what the near future looks like is unknown. It feels like every other week there is a new COVID outbreak. COVID is significantly affecting our ability to function in a rhythm of regularity. The reality is that for many of us, COVID is impacting our work and social lives. And as humans, we actually want to feel in control. We want to control situations, interactions, relationships, and outcomes. We spend time thinking through the future and what we want the desired outcomes uh, to be. We, we want to feel like we know what, what, what's going to happen. And T.D. Brockovic writes... It is quite likely that the summed frequency and intensity of the fear responses of any given individual to clear an imminent physical or psychological threat would lag far behind the summed amount of fear in response to the anticipation of such events and the myriad anxious what-if mental representations of possible future events that are common in daily life. Uh, that is a mouthful, so I have to digest that a little bit, and this is what I took from it. So that anxiety comes from the uncertainty of a future outcome. And often this anxiety is greater than the anxiety or the fear that we experience in the immediate uh, time frame when something actually goes wrong. So they lead up to something where you can actually um, yeah, feel a greater sense of fear and anxiety build up than you know, what, what actually is happening for us in the moment. Now, I know at times that I'm naturally inclined to think of different ways an interaction or circumstance can pan out. And this often leads me to thinking of the worst case scenario. And then when I look back, I always uh, think to myself, oh, well, that wasn't actually so bad. I, I thought it was gonna be a lot worse, but oh, it actually turned out to be fine. I thought it was gonna be turn, out, turn out a different way. And it's only in retrospect that I can gain clarity of the times I spent in uncertainty and dread. And this is how the disciples were feeling when the weather turned for the worse as well. Uh, they could see that the storm coming in, they're heading with the boat towards a storm, and there's this, this dread that's building up inside of them as they're heading towards a storm. I mean, as ferocious uh, thunder and lightning and the waves seem huge, and they're actually questioning whether their boat will actually be able to survive, whether they will survive. Um, I ask myself in this story, the first question that comes to mind is, well, where was Jesus in all this chaos? 
And we see in verse 38 uh, that Jesus was sleeping in the storm. He was sleeping in the ship on a cushions. So just imagine a big Egyptian cotton bed with pillows and everything. That's, Jesus is sleeping in the, underneath the deck of the boat. And you have to ask, how is Jesus able to sleep in the middle of the storm? So you've got waves beating across uh, the deck. It's hitting the hull of the boat. The boat is rocking up and down as it's uh, trying to navigate these waves. But somehow, Jesus is fast asleep. The other thing that doesn't quite make sense to me is Jesus was able to sleep peacefully through the storm. But he was woken immediately when the disciples approached him. When, he, uh, when they came to him in fear... All they had to do was say, hey, Jesus, uh, you know, what's, what's going on? I, let's quote the Bible. Um, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. They, they approached him and woke him, and he woke immediately. And the, the thing is, Jesus, in this picture, brings peace to their situation because Jesus is greater than the storm. In verse 39, it says, he got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. You could almost imagine this if you rewrite the story into a Marvel movie. You can imagine, so it's the end of the movie, two and a half hours long, some, some days they're like three hours, so a uh, three-hour movie, you're getting to the last 15 minutes and all of humanity has lost hope. They're all cornered into this one civilization or this, this one part of the world and the enemy is surrounding them, all the, you know, the weird... Uh, aliens or whoever the enemy is, um, they're overwhelmed, uh, the humanity, so the normal people. And then out of nowhere, Captain America drops from the sky with his shield and in one move throws his shield and the shield just ricochets and decapitates like 50,000 monsters. And in one power move, he pretty much wins the whole battle. Obviously, there's you know, more battle that normally goes on, but essentially, the true power of this Marvel character is revealed in this, in this one appearance. The interesting thing is, in, in the story of the storm, when Jesus rebukes the waves, he only uses his words. He just speaks to the storm. Unlike a Marvel superhero, there's nothing physical about it. He doesn't calm the waves down by swinging a hammer or blasting flames at it like Iron Man would in his suit. He only uses his words. There's power in the words of Jesus. In verse 41, it says, They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. To me, it's, it seems like a silly question. Who is this? We know Jesus to be part of the Trinity. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He is the God who spoke existence into creation, as we read in Genesis 1. He is the God who brought order into creation. He created land and ocean. He created the ocean. So if he's a creator of the sea, of course the waves will obey his command. It also says that the disciples were terrified. They asked, you know, who, who is this? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Now, why were they terrified? You know, at this point in the story, the waves have subsided, that it's peaceful again, the, the storm isn't a, a threat for them anymore, but they're still terrified. They were terrified because Jesus spoke to the storm and the storm listened. So all of a sudden, there's a flip. The storm isn't a threat anymore. 
But their biggest fear that they've built up, the storm, is gone. And Jesus is actually showing that he's sovereign over the storm. So they're actually terrified. They're scared of, of Jesus's, you know, sovereignty. We know God to be a, a big, powerful God. But this is, you know, Jesus is a human in, the, in their midst. Um, well, you can actually see God's power in that situation for them. You can see that Jesus, Emmanuel, who's God with them and with us, um, you can see God in that action. And I think that would be terrifying, confronting for me as well, if you know, a human next to me had the power of a God and performed a miraculous uh, work like that. They recognised that he had greater power over their fears. For those that don't know, um, I decided to spend the first three years out of school studying a Bachelor of Music degree. Um, it is useful. I... Yeah, it's an arts degree, so you can all have your opinions about that. But I genuinely loved uh, taking the time just to pursue something that uh, I am interested in and developing the skills that I still use to this day, um, even here at Gateway on the worship team. And um, yeah, so I, I play the trumpet. I play orchestral trumpet. That's kind of what I studied. And in August of 2019, I got the opportunity to travel to Xi'an. It's a city in mainland China. We've got to have a map on the screen. So you can see Xi'an there, uh, circled in green. Now, I thought I would circle Wuhan for us as well in red. <laughs> Two years ago, no one would have known what that city is, but um, I thought it'd be a better reference point than pointing out Beijing because, you know. Um, but there is Beijing, the capital up north as well. So I uh, got to travel out to Xi'an. We played in the Xi'an Symphony Orchestra. So there's a photo of uh, the whole orchestra. It was about 100 and, uh, I think 120, 130 people in the orchestra, around about that. And you can see me sitting there uh, in the middle of the trumpet section. So uh, there's another Australian there out of, oh, there's more people, but uh, that's Ben. He played French horn as well. And um, yeah, tremendous opportunity, but playing in a Chinese orchestra brought some difficulties, it brought some challenges. Um, we were playing Mahler's Second Symphony, it's a German piece. So naturally when Mahler wrote any instructions in the music, it would be written in German. Um, now as a, a Westerner who uses the same alphabet as the, the Germans, uh, and as a South African, our language is quite similar, I could qu kind of understand what he was, he was wanting, or I can make sense, but to be honest, the Chinese people struggled to, um, they, they didn't struggle to, they just completely missed some of the markings. So, for instance, there was one marking they would say to play the notes five notes higher. And then the guy in the rehearsal would just miss it. He wouldn't see that that instruction was there. And he'd end up playing uh, the passage in a completely wrong key, different notes, and it would derail the whole rehearsal. We'd have to start again and, you know, um, it was frustrating, and because they don't really speak English that well, and I only speak English, <laughs> having to confront a professional in his industry about a mistake he's made is not a fun place to be at, especially when my playing wasn't on top either. So, you know, it's a bit of give and take from both of us. Um, this is a particular passage we were playing. So uh, there was this one section in the music where um, the trumpets are broken into three groups, and the first group, uh, would start in the red, and a bar later, the second group, which I played in, would play in the green. And so it's a bit of like a relay race where the first group plays for a bar, and then we have to take over, and then another group needs to take over from that. Now, if you know anything about relays, when the passover is good, the you pass the baton over, and it goes well, the team succeeds. But if you drop the, you call it a, a baton, a baton, 
yeah. Um, you know, it derails the whole race for the team. And uh, this is kind of what we were experiencing. We're going to play a short excerpt. It's only 10 seconds long of this passage. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's, it's beautiful. We could probably spend the rest of the, the service tonight just listening to the rest of the piece. It's about 25 minutes long to the end, so um, I'd be happy for that as well. Now, in the rehearsals, um, the, the fifth and sixth trumpets, so the guys that played first, so the red part, they kept missing their entry. And what that meant was that because they missed their entry, I would miss my entry as well. And uh, the conductor wouldn't take that very well. He'd uh, kind of rip into us a little bit and tell us to get our acts together. We'd have to restart from the start of the section, uh, kind of reverse and go through it again. And remember, I'm playing with professionals. This is what they do for a living. So I don't want to waste their time. And I probably found this anxiety building inside of me every time the passage would come up to play. I... Um, I would start freaking out. My thinking would go foggy. I'd try to count how many bars I've counted, lose count, and then start freaking out. And yeah, it was just, it's stressful. Um, I remember sitting in the concert, uh, in the middle of the concert, I had this, this experience where I kind of, I was trying to concentrate so much or I was trying to figure out where I was that I, I kind of hopped out of the reality of the concert. And I was just trying to make sense. I don't know, I was, I was just feeling a bit foggy. Um, I just didn't want that part to derail. And I remember coming up to that, that section and just looking up at the conductor. And because the conductor had already pointed out to us in the rehearsals that we were mucking it up, he was kind of waiting for it to fall apart. Um, so he's anticipating it. And as we looked up, he made eye contact with me and he, uh, with the, f the first group first, he looked at them, gave them their cue, then looked at me and gave me my cue of where I had to come in. So even if they, they, they stuffed up, I, I knew exactly where I had to come in and where I had to play. And that's the beauty, that's the role of a conductor in an orchestra. So if we look, uh, we're going to have another picture here. So that's what the conductor sees. So it's a lot more complicated, and there's a lot more parts. But the, the piece that comes from this is that conductor is the full picture. They can see exactly what's going on for everyone at the same time. And as you can see, uh, he can see the red part, he can see the, the green part, which is what I played, and then he can see the, the yellow part as well. And so he sees a big picture, he sees how the relay is meant to work, and he could actually guide us through that passage uh, to have a good outcome. I'm pretty sure I played a wrong note in the concert anyway, but the, the, the concept still stands that uh, when I looked to the conductor, I could have certainty that he knew what was going on, even when I uh, wasn't feeling confident in the outcome. And in the same way that I look to the conductor in times of uncertainty and stress, uh, the disciples in the story of the, the sea and the storm look to Jesus in the time of their uncertainty and despair. Uh, it seemed inevitable that they were going to drown. And so their only hope was to go to Jesus and go, hey, we're going to drown. In verse 40, Jesus asks them, why do you still not have faith? So this is after he's calmed the storm. He questions why they didn't have faith that everything would turn out okay. Jesus gets frustrated because the disciples forgot about his sovereignty over all of creation. I think Jesus can get frustrated with us at times as well. Don't we know that he is sovereign? 
Don't we know that he has control over all of creation? Don't we trust that he has a plan, a bigger picture for our lives? I know I've definitely at times um, struggled in the midst of chaos and uncertainty and anxiety. I've struggled just to, to naturally want to look to God and put all my faith in him. Again, there's a natural tendency to want to stay in control. There's a tendency uh, to want to take control of the situation. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it does say, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. In this passage, God so clearly promises to us that he has a plan. He is the conductor. Just as the conductor has a, a big picture of the, uh, of the peace, God has the big picture for our lives as well. And he has the big picture in front of him. And all we have to do is surrender to him and look to him and have faith in him that he will guide us. The thing is, when we go to God in times of uncertainty, we can be certain that he is with us. When we go to God in times of uncertainty, we can be certain that he is with us. Most of you have a handout in front of you or on the seats that you would have gotten, uh, and it has a famous picture of the stormy seas on it. Uh, everyone hold it in your hands, have a look at the picture. Uh, it's a bit dark on the screen, so the picture will come in handy as well. Now, the picture is titled, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's an oil on canvas painting, and it was painted by Rembrandt van Ridge in 1633. Now, a really interesting fact, on the 18th of March of 1990, so that's, what, 300 and something years later, the paintings were actually stolen, uh, the painting was stolen amongst 12 other paintings from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in the US. And it is, it is um, titled one of the biggest uh, art, um, what's the word? Thefts. Thanks, sir. Uh, thefts in, in history. And the police are still trying to locate the painting 31, late, 31 years later. I'd love to see an updated uh, picture of the, the painting taken with an iPhone or something that will bring all the colours out. But we're, we're just stuck with a photo from the 1990s. Um, but the great thing is we can still see um, all the symbolism in the painting. And the picture so vividly depicts the passage from Mark 4. You can see the big wave. It's coming up. It's beating against the, the hull of the boat. You can see the wave's actually gone over the hull and ripped one of the sails as one of the disciples trying to um, catch a sail, trying to fix a sail. Uh, an interesting fact as well is, I don't know if you can see it, but one of the disciples here in the middle is actually looking straight back at us. And uh, I found out that the artist who painted the painting actually put himself in all of his paintings and he's, he's actually a way of him, he, he did a self-portrait of himself in all of his paintings. You can also see that Jesus is sitting uh, on the right-hand side of the boat and he seems to be the only person that's at peace. Everyone else seems to be frantically trying to control the chaos or trying to take control. He's just sitting there in peace. Something else we can see in the painting is on the left-hand side, we can clearly see uh, there's the light. Uh, so on this side, we can imagine there is no storm. This is where they're coming from. And on the right-hand side of the picture, it gets quite dark. You can see the clouds setting in. So obviously, to the right of the picture, that's, that's a storm. But in the picture, they're not heading back to the light part of the um, the sea, they're actually heading for the storm. And even though uh, there's waves crashing and everything's going wrong, they haven't made the decision to turn away 
and uh, flee from the storm. And this serves as a metaphor. When, when you have the peace of Jesus in the boat, it means that you can face the storm. You don't have to run away from the storm lying ahead. When Jesus enters the picture, there is hope in times of hopelessness. There is certainty in the times of uncertainty. In Psalm 46 verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. We need to know for ourselves that God is sovereign over all. For me, when I was sitting in that orchestra, I found comfort in knowing the conductor knew where we were going and I could look to him. And in the same way, you can look to God to give us um, direction and be our guide. But we actually have the Holy Spirit with us as well. And in that moment, I, uh, I was praying to God, asking him, hey God, like, I'm confused. I've, I've kind of lost engagement with what's going on. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, in that moment and across my life, I've just time and time again seen uh, God whisper into my ear. He calms my soul when I'm overwhelmed. He uh, brings peace to me uh, in times where there is no peace, when there's times of uncertainty and doubt. Not only is he my supporter and my guide, he is also my comfort and the place where I can find refuge. In times when I am filled with anxiety over what the future holds, I find um, you know, peace in knowing where, where we're going because I know God knows where we're going. But I also just found comfort in him in that moment. He, um, he comforts me. And the thing is that when Jesus enters the pictures for us, we can face our uncertainties knowing that he loves us and he is for us and that he has a plan for us. And we can know that we have his spirit by our side every step of the way. What are the challenges that you might be facing at the moment? What is the storm that is lying ahead? As you're entering term four, the last push of the year, what are some of the challenges lying ahead? Our natural inclination is to look at the, the storm and we want to turn around and run back uh, to better times, to, um, yeah, to the light. But the thing is, when we have Jesus on our side doing life with us, we actually step into the storm uh, knowing that he's got our back and that he will uh, help us and look after us. I want to encourage you, with God by your side, he can help you through the storm ahead and help you through to the light on the other side. Why don't we stand together this evening? As Cirque's and the team are going to lead us in a song in a moment, I want to create a space where we can come to the front. Um, I don't know what's going on for you at the moment. I don't know what the storm is that's lying ahead. But I think it'd be a great opportunity um, for us to pray for one another. I think um, I always know God as a God that meets me where I'm at. I don't need to uh, strive to a certain level or be a certain type of Christian for him to minister to me. He actually meets me in the place that I'm at. And uh, he wants to meet you this evening as well in, in the storm, in the chaos uh, of where you are at. 
And this evening, I want to invite you, come to the front. Uh, We're going to gather around you as a church family, and we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray that you will find certainty in the uncertainty. You will find hope when you're feeling hopeless. You will find peace uh, when you are restless, and you will find comfort uh, in the anxiety of life. So I invite you, come down the front as we sing. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.